Hello, I'm Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm pleased to bring you our third episode of Season 2 for China Uncovered, part of our broader China Transparency Project. The project and this series of podcasts are pushing for greater data-heavy transparency for the Chinese Communist Party, and we're doing so by highlighting the work of our friends. For this episode, we're focusing on the Chinese government's military activities as we look into arms transfers in particular. And I'm delighted to co-host this episode with my heritage colleague, Dean Chang, Senior Research Fellow in the Asian Studies Center. Dean is a renowned expert on security challenges in China, especially on China's space program, cyber espionage, and military more generally. For our dedicated and longtime listeners, you might actually remember that Dean was also the co-host in last season's episode where we looked into China's activities in the South China Sea. So welcome back, Dean. Uh, Hey, Olivia. Thank you for the opportunity to be back. Yeah. Well, Dean, I know that you have a really long history of working on China. Prior to joining Heritage, Dean spent 13 years at SAIC and the Center for Naval Analysis as a senior security analyst. And prior to that, he spent several years in the government working in the Office of Technology Assessment. He received his bachelor's from Princeton and studied for his doctorate at MIT. Dean, can you bring us up to speed on the latest in China's military activities? Um, For today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at the PLA's activities in international arms transfers, and it would be great if you could fill our listeners in on exactly um, what are arms transfers, why it is important to get an accurate picture of the PLA's activities, and just kind of set the stage and give us some background and context for our conversation. Sure, I'd be happy to. So the Chinese military, the People's Liberation Army, has been steadily modernizing its equipment. Uh, A lot of people uh, may still have the misimpression that the Chinese military is very large, but mostly armed with obsolete equipment, which was certainly true when Mao Zedong was in charge, but that was a long time ago. Today's Chinese military uh, fields an array of very modern systems. Uh, In the news lately has been Chinese tests of hypersonic weapons, uh, but China produces advanced main battle tanks, self-propelled artillery, two stealth fighter jets, is working on its own aircraft carrier. Um, So it builds an array of very modern systems not just weapons, but also support equipment. So uh, airborne early warning radars, uh, electronic warfare aircraft, things like that. What we are watching is that as the PLA modernizes its equipment, it is also starting to export uh, both weapons and also support systems abroad. And for example, you see the Chinese uh, exporting uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, sometimes referred to as drones to a variety of players, Um, especially in the Middle East, we see a number of countries in the Persian Gulf uh, now operating Chinese manufactured uh, UAVs. So these uh, arms transfers um, are, uh, uh, make China a very interesting new player in addition to the United States, uh, Russia, France, and Great Britain. Uh, China uh, has about 16% of global arms sales at the present moment, and four of the top 25 arms manufacturers uh, are Chinese companies. Uh, Most of these companies, Mm -hmm. by the way, are state-owned enterprises. 
Oh, that's really interesting and very helpful context, Dean. Uh, thank you for helping to set the stage. It's now my pleasure to bring in our guest, Simone T. Wesman from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, also known as CIPRI. Um, Simone is a senior researcher with the CIPRI Arms Transfer Program. His areas of research include monitoring of arms transfers, military spending, and arms production, with a particular focus on the Asia Pacific and former Soviet Union. He also focuses on the use of weapons in conflicts. Um, Simon, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Olivia. <laughs> Great. Well, to kick things off, can you share a bit about CIPRI's arms transfer program? Yeah, uh, CIPRI was set up in the 1960s with a sort of double function or triple function, if you want. Um, one is to bring researchers together from different areas of the world, mostly East and West in that time. Uh, a second to try to get discussions going, mostly on issues related to arms control. And thirdly, to um, have those discussions based on neutral facts. Uh, often the basis of any discussion needs to be some kind of agreement of the facts. And CIPRI was in a position uh, to collect those data and produce some uh, facts on, for example, nuclear weapons or military spending or arms trade um, that could be agreed upon as reasonably valid by most discussions um, in, in various uh, fora. Since the 1960s, we have um, basically done this fact work, um, producing facts uh, on, on arms transfers, analyzing that and providing um, suggestions for improvements, um, more security in, in arms transfers, more discussion and transparency. Mm, that's really great. Um, so today's episode, we're going to be focusing on CIPRI's arms transfer database. Can you share with us sort of a broad overview of the project? What is the project track? And um, in particular, what methodology or set of methodologies do you guys use to collect the data? Yeah, so the, the arms transfers database is really that part of our work where we try to provide neutral facts. Um, we do that purely from open sources, so anybody else can find the same sources and find the same facts. Of course, you know when you work with sources, uh, any event where there are two stories, two sources, you will find that the stories um, somewhat differ often, even on the facts just interpretation. So for us, we have to make some kind of sense out of quite a lot of sources, some very reliable, some not reliable, some official, some not official. Um, we do that with a lot of background knowledge uh, about sources uh, and about states. Um, you know, things may be listed in a source. As it looks great, but when you really think of it, it seems to be rather impossible that some states would supply weapons to another state where they're not friendly with, at least don't have a track record of being friendly. So those kinds of things we keep in mind. We um, we look only at major weapons and that's major weapons as we define them. So basically the larger platforms, missiles, um, some larger components. Uh, we do that for basically two reasons. Uh, it's those major weapons that are important in the relations between states, um, either unfriendly relations, these are the weapons that are most useful for aggression, but also friendly relations because these are the advanced weapons, the big weapons that tell you how close relations between supplier and recipients are. 
but we do that also for a very practical reason. Uh, that's a matter of sources and resources. Um, sources are reasonably good to quite good to very good on larger weapons, and the smaller the weapon, uh, the more hidden the component, mm -hmm. the more it becomes impossible to get from open sources a, a global uh, picture uh, that is in any way reliable or relevant. Um, practical also, of course, because we have only a few people doing this work. Uh, that's just a matter of, of, of money. We don't have that uh, that much. We have two sets of information. One is basically the database, which provides you with information, which weapons have been transferred when, by whom, to where. Um, so descriptions of the weapons say, N, MiG-29 supplied in these and these years by Russia to India um, and maybe some uh, comments on, on what they paid for it or if these were second-hand systems or not. Um, so that is that is one set. That's our online database and of course if you take for a couple of years let's say the export of China or Russia or the US then you get a very very long list um, where you can't really see very clearly the, the sort of the statistical part of it, the trends, it's very difficult to distinguish. Uh, so we have a different system to do that, a statistical system where we basically give every weapon a value which is based on the raw military value of value as a military tool of that specific system. So it's not a financial value, it's basically uh, the bang that you get. Um, a little bit same you will see in in professional wargaming um, where weapons also have to be given some kind of value how they would perform in in the simulation um, and that's also done in a similar way um, we don't do the financial part for two reasons uh, the financial data is often just not known uh, take for example china we just don't know what mm -hmm. the value of many of the contracts is or what the value or how much the Chinese would pay for a specific weapon uh, from their own production. And the other one is that financial values often don't tell you very much um, about the, the impact. Um, weapons may be given as A, so they have a zero value, but of course there is an impact. Um, a weapon may be produced in a country which has very low production cost and a similar weapon or maybe even the same weapon may be produced in another country with higher costs uh, and in the financial terms it would look different but in real terms of course what you transfer the impact of it is it would be the same. Mm, that's really helpful. For interested listeners, um, I, I should have mentioned this at the outset, we will have a link in the show notes to CPRI's arms transfers database and other relevant reports, um, so you can dig into this data yourself. Um, Simone, you covered um, you know broader trends uh, from the data, but I'd love to hone in a bit on what the data tells us about trends in China's arms transfers. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Certainly. China has, as, as an exporter, has grown in the last 20 years. In the last decade or so, it is one of the top five arms exporters. Um, before those periods, it was the number six or seven or even lower. It has been in the top five before in the 1980s, um, but that was largely due to deliveries to basically three clients at that time, including a lot of the things that went to Iraq and Iran that disappeared and it dropped. Um, and you get a whole new 
type of exports uh, in China in the last uh, 10 years. Not only is it um, increasing uh, and is China increasing and becoming a top five exporter, uh, but also the type of systems that are being transferred uh, is different. Well, in the 1980s, um, as Dean already said, in that time, it was a backward uh, arms industry with producers basically weapons that had extremely old technology. That is very different now. Um, what China now offers and what China also sells is much more advanced equipment. Equipment but does actually compete on markets where also Europeans or Russians or, or the US is uh, is active. Uh, so that's that's a different, uh, an, another trend that you, you see there. Um, you see that also that they are quite keen in showing what they do and they seem to be quite keen also in marketing their equipment. Look at, for example, Zuhai, uh, what they show there is advanced technology, uh, but they're also active in many arms fairs um, globally, uh, Middle East, in Africa, even in Europe, they have shown up uh, at arms fairs to show what they produce, but also to try to sell that. There is, however, still the fact that China has problems entering some markets. Uh, the European market is, of course, closed. Uh, the North American market is closed. The Middle Eastern market is a place where the Chinese have really been active in marketing, but the success is very slow in coming. Certainly some weapons are being sold, especially the niche uh, products uh, like drones and armed drones have done very well there, but most other equipment is, is just not yet bought in large numbers or in numbers by um, by most Middle Eastern states. Um, Africa is a place where China is competing strongly with basically everybody else by offering rather simple uh, products. And in that they offer basically technically the same stuff as what everybody else offers and probably for um, better prices. So it becomes a matter of um, either the price or the states want to link up to with an ally or, or getting military aid. Um, the, um, the main, the bulk of Chinese exports, however, has gone and still goes to Asia and within Asia only to a rather limited number of states. Also there, there are markets which are just not accessible for China. Big markets. India is just not not accessible, Japan, South Korea, Australia, the big markets in, in, in Asia are not. Um, but um, the bulk of Chinese arms exports goes to, to places like Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, Myanmar, uh, some of it goes to Thailand, um, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Myanmar states, which have a long-standing, very friendly relation, in the case of Pakistan, an alliance relation um, with China. So it's not, not weird that they take quite a lot of Chinese weapons. There are also states, at least in the case of Pakistan and certainly Myanmar, that have um, problems getting their weapons from somewhere else. So in the way the Chinese step in there in, let's say, avoid, there is not much else, uh, no, but not many other uh, suppliers that are willing to supply. The last trend is maybe to see how China has, has is offering weapons that are more advanced, but also offering um, technology transfers, so basically helping uh, import the states to set up their arm, arms industry um, and by supplying not only kits with, with weapons produced in China, but also providing some of the technology to some of the states that um, where those states can, can use that uh, knowledge and the technology to develop uh, their own weapons. Uh, 
that is similar to what uh, many European states do. Um, the US is not so strong in that. They tend to keep their hands on, on technology and, and it's something that the Russians are offering but are not always very good in doing. It's, it's basically what nowadays is demanded from, from many of the larger importers. You have to share technology. Um, so that is uh, a sort of general trend, but the Chinese follow that too. So with these very interesting trends, um, how has COVID affected things? Uh, have we seen a reduction in global arms sales as everyone's been locked down, as, as uh, Big shows have have uh, had to either go virtual or even been canceled. Um, what impact has COVID-19 had on both global arms trade, but also specifically Chinese arms transfers? I haven't seen really any significant um, impact. Of course, it has impacted in some of the deliveries, uh, largely uh, not so much because of the supply chains getting disturbed, but um, to some extent where weapons that are finished couldn't be delivered because the teams from the recipient country were unwilling or unable to come to the supplier country to do the final testing and the final signing of acceptance. So there are cases where things just have been finished and they've been standing around for a couple of months or even longer. Um, but that's rather a small part. Um, hmm. Of course, many of, of what we look at is deliveries, and most of that is based on contracts which signed long before COVID. New contracts is also there. Is, I mean, it's difficult to see what the exact impact is, but I haven't seen that terribly much difference. Um, that what has been planned or known to be planned seems to be just going on. Contracts are being signed. Um, let's say this way, military spending remains uh, high. Um, Globally, in general, uh, I think most states haven't really uh, done much in reduction for military spending linked to COVID, especially to the economic effects of COVID. That may change, uh, that economic effects may be, may, may take longer to, uh, to, to solve, uh, and then you would expect somewhere an, an impact on uh, state budgets. And one of the early things that you do as a state is cut in, in defense spending. Um, that's often the easiest. Um, but um, yeah, we have to see how that's that's going to develop. You mentioned supply chains. Um, has the ongoing trade rivalry between the U.S. and China uh, affected either country's uh, military defense supply chains, given that for the most part, these seem to be insulated from each other. The U.S. certainly has tried actively to limit Chinese presence in its military supply chains. Presumably the Chinese have gone even farther in that regard. But um, as we watch trade tensions between Washington and Beijing, has that affected uh, weapons development programs, technology development programs, military technology programs in these two countries? I, um, I don't think so. No, as you said, uh, they're pretty much insulated. China is not dependent on the U.S. in basically any way for its own weapon production. Uh, civilian production, yes, but not weapon production. Um, and the US, not on China uh, to any any significant extent. Um, so that part is, uh, I think, uh, not, not affected uh, by the supply chain issues. Um, and even Chinese arms production, which is still partly dependent on some components 
coming from, for example, Russia, Ukraine, doesn't seem to be affected there. Hmm. Um, you brought up Russia, and uh, could you talk a little bit more about uh, what relations, uh, defense industrial relations are between Russia and China? Uh, because um, while China does seem to import some items uh, from Russia, uh, China's respect for Russian intellectual property uh, doesn't seem to be that much higher than it is for others. And so um, could you talk a little bit about the, the defense industrial relations between these two? Yes. Uh, so in the, in the late 1980s, just to go back to how this developed, uh, China was looking at developing modern or fairly modern weaponry. Um, that was the policy and basically went to the West for technology. Um, the West, the Europeans, Israelis, the US, uh, that all of course fell basically flat uh, with Tiananmen uh, in 89. After that, basically everything was cut off. And the Chinese were looking, where can we get technology? They were not that ready to to um, to develop their own. Uh, they had got the infrastructure, uh, they didn't have the, the technology base or the intellectual base to do that. Um, so they were a little bit in a in a yeah in a limbo there. And then the Cold War ended, the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia became an independent state from Soviet Union, and the Russian economy collapsed, um, where the whole Russian arms industry was basically from day one day to the other looking at a reduction in, in orders uh, of of up to 90% or maybe even more. And basically to stay alive, uh, they had to look, okay, we have to export and we need a big client. And there was China, um, a client which had money, which was willing to import and the Russians on the other side willing to export. So they basically became strange bedfellows, you could say. Um, relations were not super friendly, but it, it was a must from both sides. Um, from there on, the Chinese have imported in the 1990s, early 2000s, Russian technology, aircraft, ships, missiles, engines, radar systems, etc. Um, and they have learned a lot from that. And as you say, their respect for intellectual property, not always being that great, they also have just copied things. Um, and in Russia, they knew that that was going to happen. So there were words in Russia saying, well, we shouldn't provide them with this latest technology because it's just going to copy it. Um, and then they're going to sell that on the world market or even threaten us. Um, but yeah, desperation in Russia um, left them to basically supply quite advanced technology. Um, it's in the last 10, 15 years that the Chinese have basically managed to take that technology, take what they learned, take what they could copy and then build on that, uh, which a much uh, more um, economic resources and probably also intellectual resources to develop weapons that are becoming more and more Chinese, which are less and less in need of Russian uh, bits and pieces or full platforms. So they have a couple of years still imported some air defense systems and a handful or two handfuls of combat aircraft, but for platforms, the only thing that is really going still is helicopters, which are a difficult to manufacture uh, or to design product. The helicopter itself, not, but it's the, the engine, the propulsion, the transmission, the rotor system, which is not that easy. Um, the Chinese have had problems with that, so importing basically proven Russian technology for reasonable prices does the trick there. Other things, um, it's basically only uh, what we can see engines um, for combat aircraft, 
which is another technology which is difficult to um, to develop. Um, it's it's difficult to say reverse engineer. Uh, you, you can measure an engine. You can see what it's what it's made of. You can see how big it is, etc. Uh, but it's very difficult some of the components to figure out how exact to make them. Um, especially things like the turbine blades and the the the, the burning chambers uh, of jet engines um, are you know they're made of exactly what you know, but how that's being done, how that alloy is being made, um, is difficult. And the Chinese have had problems with that, so they have imported Russian Russian engines, uh, and they still keep importing some Russian engine. But in the last few years, last I would say the last two years. Um, they have shown that Chinese engines are now on par with the Russian engines. They found find them in China reliable enough to put them in normal production combat aircraft uh, and transport aircrafts. And thus, uh, I see the Russian engine deliveries very quickly disappearing. Um, the Chinese can do it now themselves. Uh, and that wow. basically would cut off Russian supplies to very, very little in the coming years. And, and we know very well that China is desperately trying to develop uh, whatever they import from somewhere else to do whatever local um, equivalent and, and produce that instead of being dependent on on imports. So, uh, Mr. Wiesemann, can you highlight some of the unique challenges that are at play when you have to collect data on China or on the Chinese government's practices? Are there any challenges that you think differ from a lot of the other countries that you do collect data on? Well, the biggest challenge is, of course, that China is a very closed uh, state. Mm -hmm. It's very, there's very little official information. Companies are very well controlled. They give very little information. Most states, are very open or reasonably open about their arms imports and their arms exports. Companies are generally quite open. I mean, they don't give everything, um, but there's a lot of information. Non-official sources, so media and, and all kinds of other public sources um, are available. Uh, blogs exist, and the aircraft spotters exist, uh, all kinds of, of independent media and journalists exist, uh, and they publish even in places like Russia. Um, but in China, that is just not the case. Uh, you have you depend very much on what you see going out of China, so what you see end up in the recipient state. Um, a number, small number of official uh, things from China, which not not always complete and not always 100% correct. When you look at other information, um, some of the companies more or less by accident give information. I mean, there are some companies which have their own Twitter accounts, etc., where sometimes you see information. But it's um, yeah, the, the the close society, the the lack of transparency from the official side or the semi-official side in China is is a a big challenge. Mm, yeah, that's definitely a common theme that comes up. You know, uh, this podcast covers a broad array of issues from economic um, challenges to human rights to security issues. And and yes, the Chinese Communist Party's desire to obfuscate um, information is just such a common theme. I'm curious, though, have you received any reaction or responses from the Chinese government to the um, CPRI arms transfer programs, research and findings? Not really. Um, I think in general, they just 
take it. Uh, there isn't really <laughs> much that they do about it. Uh, I haven't seen any complaints really from them, except of course, when you are bringing the CP data in an official uh, place like UN or so, um, and you talk about Taiwan, uh, that's of course out of the question. But for the rest, um, Remember also the, the, the CIPRI yearbook that includes the data on arms transfers or, or military spending is translated in China by a partner of China, which is linked to the Chinese government. Mm. And they tra they translate it verbatim. They don't make any comments. They don't change anything. It's just as it is. Mm. Wow. So many of our listeners are a part of the policymaking community. What areas of China's arms industry do you think are maybe under-researched or merit additional attention? I think almost everything. Um, <laughs> but if you want to take take one or two of them, I think it's important to understand what is what what's the output of the industries. Um, and then I mean. What's the finance, what financial data is there? I mean, for so some of the companies, there is financial data. For some other big ones, there is just nothing that you can find. Um, but also the output in in just numbers. How how many aircraft? How many missiles, etc. Uh, Chinese uh, arms industry supplying to the PLA? We know it for ships because they're very very easy to observe. But for let's say tanks, we just don't know. And for aircraft, we have only really rough estimates. And that is, of course, important to know that information if you want to have some kind of assessment of your um, of, of the potential threat uh, that you can see in China and not overreact to it, uh, but also not underreact to it. Um, what I think would be most interesting would see what is the R&D that's going on in China on, on military equipment. Um, and there again, data on how much is being spent on that, but also what directions is that taking? Uh, we, we get bits and pieces uh, where you know that artificial intelligence is important, etc. But how much do they actually work on that? Uh, which is a very little idea. Um, mm -hmm. And we have that idea we do have from, from Western companies. We do have that even from for Russia. Um, but for China, it's just a, a big gray hole, I should say. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you, you've really, um, you know, given us a comprehensive overview of China's arms transfers. Um, so I've, I only have one more question for you. Um, it would be great to hear from you what action you would like to see in response to the findings of your reports. Um, what are some of the most effective ways that policymakers can use your data? The CIPRI basically is is directed against policymakers or towards policymakers. Um, we try to provide them um, with ways to have very deep and broad discussions about issues related to security uh, and peace. When it comes to arms transfers, we provide the data in the hope uh, and sometimes in the knowledge uh, that we provide that information, just the basic data for discussions on the national, the regional or the international level on arms trade and especially the negative, potential negative impacts of arms trade. An exporter has to understand that exporting weapons can lead to problems in the place where or in the region where the weapons are received. And the importer has to understand that buying weapons 
maybe on the surface or for its own policy, all, all fine and well for security, but of course the neighbors may look at that slightly different. Uh, and we need to have those discussions um, at those levels to understand those impacts and to deal with those impacts. Uh, so that is basically where we um, aim our um, our data at. Um, the secondary one is by showing that we can provide this data from open sources, data that is by many governments seen as secret or partially secret, but by showing that it's there, mm -hmm. uh, we hope that governments then take that uh, hint and think, why is it secret? Why would we call it secret when it is there? At least enough is there or enough is there to worry my neighbors. So why not be a bit more transparent? So the idea of increasing transparency in arms trade, but also in in defense policy, um, is our basically our second um, goal, and that then plays into again, once you have the transparency, you need to have those discussions with your neighbors um, about yeah what you're doing and how they see it and how they may react to it. Wow. Well, I think it would be hard um, for listeners to reach the end of this conversation and conclude that China is transparent. Um, and I think, you know, the work that you're doing and the work of CIPRI um, is really doing a lot uh, to, to peel back those layers, not just, you know, in the Chinese context, but all across the globe. So thank you so much for joining us today, Simon. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, and once again, thank you uh, to my colleague, Dean, for co-hosting today. It's great to have you back on the podcast. And again, thank you for having me as well. Yeah, of course. Well, I've no doubt that our listeners found um, this discussion as helpful as I did. This is way outside my usual area of expertise, and so uh, very grateful to have both Simone and Dean here to shed light on these important issues. Um, for those who are eager to learn more about Heritage's work on China transparency, we have our China Transparency Project website um, where you can find the 2021, the inaugural China Transparency Report. I'm gonna make sure to include a link um, in the show notes to both the website and the report. And the website and the report hopefully will serve as useful resources to listeners who are eager to learn more about the incredible data-driven research that's being done all across the globe documenting the activities of the CCP. Thank you once again to our listeners for tuning in to China Uncovered, a podcast dedicated to pulling back the veil on the activities of the Chinese Communist Party. In two weeks from now, we will be bringing you another episode. Um, our subject is still to be determined, um, but we are excited to have you back. And don't forget to subscribe to China Uncovered on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We look forward to hearing from you next time. China Uncovered is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.